Welcome to Physicians Off the Beaten Path, a podcast where we have set out to bust the myth that physicians can't venture outside the traditional clinical or research career path. My name's Shad, and I'm a physician and a Harvard MBA and a co-founder of a digital therapeutic startup called Sky Therapeutics. And my name is Alex. I qualified as an MD in Syria before studying for an MBA, computer science PhD, and a master's of bioengineering at Harvard, Oxford, and Stanford. And now I'm building Sky Therapeutics with Shad. Our guest today is Dr. Kaiser Kaderi. Kaiser is a neuroophthalmic surgeon, technologist, and futurist. Kaiser is a clinical associate professor at the Byers Eye Institute at Stanford University, the director and founder of the Stanford Human Perception Laboratory and the Stanford Vision Performance Center, and faculty at the Stanford Institute of Human-Centered AI. He's an advisor to Magic Leap, the NBA, Airy Pharma, the Global Esports Federation, Comp Health Global, and the World Health Organization. He's the founder of Viserio, a perceptual AI company spun out from the Human Perception Laboratory. Kaiser has extensive domain expertise in artificial intelligence, virtual reality, augmented reality, mixed reality, wearables, applied neuroscience, human factors, and human machine interface slash interaction. Kaiser finished his undergraduate degree and master's in public health at 18 years of age and started medical school when he was 19. He graduated from the University of Utah in 2002, did a residency in ophthalmology at the University of Arizona. Kaiser, thank you so much for joining us and welcome to Physicians Off the Beaten Path. Oh, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. We're so excited to have you on today. You know, one of our previous guests connected us and we love it whenever we have our previous guests, you know, get more guests to us, especially people in their network who've had deep, deep impact in various disciplines. And I know our, our audience members will really enjoy this episode. Kaiser, just to start us off, you know, we're excited to explore your story today, but to put things in perspective for our audience, can you tell us a little bit about your background, you know, your childhood years, why you decided to go to medical school in the first place, especially at such a young age, right? We got to talk about that and why you decided to eventually venture off the beaten path. Wow. I mean, this could be, uh, you know, it's one of those questions I, I always say is like, do I answer that in the short version or the long version? Never had had to ask about, we have time here. <laughs> yeah, about, about childhood. So, you know, in my childhood, you know, I was it, it was interesting because I, I I was born in Los Angeles and we moved to Salt Lake City at a relatively you know uh, most of my formative years were in Salt Lake City. So when when you think about Salt Lake back in like the eighties and nineties, the word diversity is not the first word that comes to mind. Uh, but, but it was one of those things that. Um, I probably wouldn't, I wouldn't have it any other way because, you know, in a lot of ways I had to connect with people of, you know, especially being somebody, I used to say I was like a cocoa puff in a sea of milk at the time. I had to find commonalities, um, between myself and, and, and others. And, uh, you know, and I think that skill is a very important skill. Because we'll talk about a little bit later when you think about entrepreneurship and you start getting into areas that aren't in your comfort zone, um, you can always go back to, hey, what what relates us? So I think I learned that at a very early age. Um, and Salt Lake was great because it was one of those place where, places where you could get in enough trouble, but not too much trouble. And, um, you know, my parents, you know, they both immigrated from India. So one of the things that, you know, was very much encouraged was education. So, you know, we all started school at a relatively early age. I was I'm the youngest of five. And, you know, uh, we were encouraged to, you know, it was a healthy kind of competition in some ways, in shape or form. At least that's how I remember my childhood. So I got to play sports. I was pretty, like, you know, balanced in, 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 in that way. And the way I got into medicine was really – it was encouraged at a young age. <laughs> so it was basically, you know, um, I, I'm sure this could be a lot of folks, you know, other folks that you probably had uh, here probably could attest to a similar type of background where there were a certain type of expectations. You know, I wanted to be an archaeologist at one point. I think it was because I watched Indiana Jones. And, you know, I'm like, hey, I mentioned that to my, to my mom and dad. And they're like, mm, what about doctor? So, <laughs> so it was like... <laughs> Uh, you know, it's like, hey, what about this? Well, why, not, why not be a physician? So that was kind of my early introduction into the sense of like, hey, why did you want to be a doctor? I think, you know, 
as I kind of moved on in my studies from undergrad, I mean, from high school into undergrad, you know, I still asked that question. I think at the time I very, was very much goal oriented. So I was like, Hey, I want to get into med school at this age. It just, I was always goal oriented from a very early age. So I'm like, okay, that's, that's the thing. So I want to be in med school at 18, right? How do I make that happen? And, you know, anecdotally, <laughs> this is totally going to age me, um, is, you know, at the time you had word processors and you had like, you know, you had Microsoft Word and you had like WordPerfect. I doubt either of you would remember what that is. But I remember when applying for med school applications, they had the option because they would mail you out the forms and they'd be on different types of colored paper, right? Depending on what med school, I have no idea why they made it so complicated. So there was like canary, yellow, and there was like, you know, these different pinks and blues. So you can't mess up when you're typing these out, right? But I had this option where it said you could either type or you could use or you could print with either blue or black ink. So I actually, for the first time I applied to med school, I hand wrote my applications. And later I found out I was one of five people at one university that hand wrote their applications and their advice to me was type it next time. So it was kind of funny. So in, in some ways, I just knew I needed to be there, whether I was mentally and you know ready for it was another question. Um, in the sense of that was a question was maturity. And my point was like, well, if you can, you know, if you give me that as an option, I'll take that option. So I think the lesson I learned there is it's good to be creative, but there's also a part where you have to conform to what the expectations are around it. So, um, that's a little anecdote of history about like, you know, starting off at a, at a younger age. Um, I did, you know, when I got into medical school, I don't know about the two of you, um, but I had no idea what I wanted to do. So I'm not sure if you guys had an idea about like a specialty or anything of that nature, if you're inspired, but I didn't know I was going to go into ophthalmology at the time. Um, I'm not sure if either of you guys, did you guys know what you wanted to do when you? Yeah. Well, so uh, great question, Kaiser. I think I was a pretty late entrant to the medical career. I actually started college as a philosophy major of all things, uh, because that's what I loved in, in high school and decided that I was no good at it in college and promptly switched to pre-med. Uh, when I actually started medical school, I thought I was going to be a GI doctor. That was like sort of my goal. I did research in GI. I, I don't have a ton of papers, but like most of them are in GI. And then I rotated in general surgery and sort of everything changed and ended up doing half of a general surgery residency. And so I plopped around quite a bit. I, I had like a little love affair with radiation oncology at one point that led to one or two research papers. But yeah, I, I was always indecisive when it came to my specialty. Nice. Yeah. So I had no clue. And so when I, when I got in, you know, I was more interested because one of my buddies from high school got into acting and had an agent and was like on like, like nationally televised sitcoms and movies. And I'm all like, I want to do that. So, <laughs> so when I started med school, I was like, okay, maybe I'll be a doctor and also like, you know, do, do some type of acting. So while everyone else was doing their research between their first and second year, right, everyone did like some research in some lab in that, in that summer break, I actually, um, worked the anniversary sale at Nordstrom's. I have no affiliation to Nordstrom, so I'm not selling any of the products, but I did that for two weeks, made the same amount of money and then went out to LA, um, where I had a lot of relatives and I actually landed an agent and I was, just, <laughs> that's basically what I was doing between first and second year of med school. Um, and so it was kind of funny because, uh, you know, if you would have asked my younger self, I never would have thought I'd be here talking to you guys about technology and later about some of the other things that we'll be, what we'll be kind of talking about with entrepreneurship. And so, um, the way I got interested in ophthalmology was through an upperclassman. It was just, you know, one of those random conversations you have in a cafeteria where like, Hey, you know, I remember it was, uh, uh Rajiv, Rajiv Kumar. He's an ophthalmologist. He's out in, in Colorado. And he's excellent. If anyone needs to see an ophthalmologist in Colorado. But um, I remember he was an upperclassman at the time. And I said, Rajiv, why, like, what are you going to go into? He's like, oh, ophthalmology. I said, why? He goes, oh, it's just awesome. It's just nice, you know, blend of, of surgery and, and clinical care. And it's very like kind of cutting edge. And he goes, you should go to, he, he told me about this thing uh, at the time, this program called Harvest Africa. 
and um, one of our mutual mentors now, uh, he was a he was the vice chairman at the Marin Eye Center. He, he passed, uh, you know, recently. Um, he would go and you know do cataract surgery in like you know different different countries and help with education and so forth. And so I went with him. So I went to Ghana with uh, Dr. Alan Crandall. And that's kind of what hooked me. You know, there was a bunch of different specialties that went. It wasn't just ophthalmology. It was anesthesia. It was radiology. We had infectious disease. I think we had pediatrics as well. And I just kind of fell in love with with opto, just kind of operating with very like a lean team and lean resources. But, you know, there'd be over 500 people a day that would just walk from all over just to see us. And, you know, when you think about cataracts and, you know, you think about like just like you know, developing worlds there, um, you know, some of the things that we take for granted, you know, being in our, like our twenties, thirties and forties and not really having a lot of visual issues to be able to have preventable blindness where you're like 40 and you have cataracts and you can't provide for your family. It's a very, uh, you know, it's a sobering thought and to be able to like do a surgery within a few minutes and be able to give somebody their uh, capabilities back and their ability to provide was, you know, that was very um, rewarding for me to see firsthand as a med student. So that's, that's basically how I went into ophthalmology. I was just very lucky because, you know, my mentor at the time and his fellow at the time, who's now one of the, you know, one of the top foremost ophthalmologists in, in the world, uh, his name's Ike Ahmed. They, I, w- I was there at that time. So I was lucky because I didn't just see excellence in a uh, in terms of just like care. I also saw folks that were innovators. They didn't just use the tools; they were creating the tools. You know, the surgical instruments or the different processes or whatever. And so, you know, at a very formative time in my career, like, hey, okay, I'm going to do ophthalmology, but hey, this is the only way I learned ophthalmology is through the eyes of these folks and what how they kind of approach things. They're very much more like pioneers and entrepreneurs in in the field. And I don't think if I had that exposure early on that I would have been motivated to go that extra step, right? So yeah. That's a little bit about how I how I got in my childhood, I got into uh interested in ophthalmology. Yeah, no, that's incredibly inspiring, Kaiser. A couple of things I wanted to reflect on. I think the first thing is it's 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 nice to hear a story about, you know, you growing up in Salt Lake City and, and how that was formative in your life. You know, one thing Alex and I always talk about is a ton of our guests, you know, grew up in like the Boston bubble or like the New York bubble or the SF bubble. And like those tend to produce a lot of like innovators. And that's great. But, you know, I grew up in, in Taka and Bangladesh, you know, Alex grew up in Ukraine and Syria. And, and so seeing people, you know, not in those, you know, two or three hotspots, but in all around the world, even in the United States is just fantastic. And I know like Salt Lake City is like an innovator in and of itself. Like obviously Intermountain is there. That's on the cutting edge of, of clinical delivery, uh, at least in that context. But it's just nice to have guests from all over. I think the other thing I wanted to mention is there must be something with ophthalmologists and going off the beaten path. We've had Sophia Patai on uh, on the podcast. We've had you on the podcast. Our last episode, which we haven't uh, put out yet, is actually Jeff Levinson, who's the CMO of C International. I don't know, Kaiser, if you're familiar with a, a recent video by the famous YouTuber, Mr. Beast, uh, oh, that yeah. came out yeah. where he cures a thousand people's blindness and it's gone viral, like, you know, hundred million views just in a few days. So the ophthalmologist uh, in the video is Jeff Levinson. And so we had him on the podcast and he sort of talked about, you know, how passionate he has been about curable blindness for the last 15 years. He sort of talked about how he was like standing on a hill, like yelling about it. And like some people cared, but not a ton. But in the span of like the last week, he's been getting interviewed by ABC, by the New York Times, all these different places. And so I think the value of social media and and networks, you know, is very, very important to spreading messages. And so I just love the ophthalmology and public health connection uh, there as well. For my next question, just wanted to shift gears here a little bit. In one of your interviews, you mentioned that quote, it's not that I'm a surgeon starting a health tech company, rather I developed a technology company which created perceptual artificial intelligence that's based on these life experiences and my domain expertise in neuroscience and cognitive science and behavioral science. 
I've learned the value of cross-pollination and learning from people in other disciplines. And I really loved that particular quote because for me personally, it's been a transformational few years, right? I've, I've realized over the last few years that there's a lot of progress and innovation happening in the intersection of disciplines and, and a lot of insights that perhaps have been discovered or illuminated to an extent in other industries can potentially help healthcare and, and vice versa. It's just there's this information asymmetry because there aren't translators, enough translators to actually take that information in another industry and, and apply it to healthcare and again, vice versa. For me, going to you know business school, HBS, where I met Alex, was the catalyst. You know, you have people from all over the world, from various industries, sharing their ideas and perspectives. And I always say, you can't help but learn a thing or two in those classrooms. And that cross pollination has only accelerated at our startup, where I interact with you know software developers, scientists, regulatory experts, etc. But how did you, you know, go about, you know, seeking this cross-pollination of ideas and, and from whom would you say you learned the most from? And, and how do you recommend those in our audience, you know, go about getting exposure to these diverse influences? Yeah. Um, well, thank you. And, you know, sometimes it's, it's refreshing hearing some of these quotes where you're like, wait, that's, did I say that? Oh, that's great. It sounds, you know, I'm glad it has, <laughs> yeah, I, I, I'm glad it resonated in, in some way, shape or form because, you know, it's one of those things where, you know, off the beaten path, I mean, both of you have kind of gone off the beaten path. When you think about medicine, it's very much a, a you know what you're getting into, the structure for it and the, and the horizon of how long it'll take you. For the most part, it's pretty consistent across the board, right? And so you're really dedicating a certain portion, almost a decade of your life to the understanding of, you know, of, you know, the human, you know, human body and the system and, you know, and, and how to, how to treat. And I think part of that is, you know, there, there, there's an art part of it and then there's a science part of it, right? The art of medicine and the science of medicine. And I feel like, you know, it's nice to have a balance of those two things. And I think the art part allows the curiosity to really kind of happen. So when we, to, to answer your question about like, well, you know, what did you seek out? It wasn't like, it was curiosity you know, at the end of it, you know, so the, when I, when I was in residency, I was trying to figure out a bunch of different types of like, you know, what do I want to do? What kind of like, you know, I, I, I had ideas for companies and for different things. I don't know why I had this entrepreneurial kind of streak, even like in med school, but you know, the way I, I, I used my creativity at that time was more around like, you know, doing like, school roasts or doing like video and content. Yeah. Back in the day, I used to do that stuff and I loved it. Right. But that's amazing. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I loved it. I mean, thank, thank goodness. None of that stuff's probably out there, <laughs> but like, but, but then I started channeling the, channel, channeling the creativity to my area of specialty. And I think that was the first time I got some great advice. One of my buddies I was in med school with me was, you know, he was a little bit older and he started with a business outside, did his MBA and everything, then went to med school. And so Mike said, hey, look, if you're going to start somewhere, first start in, in your field. So I kind of took that to heart when I was in, you know, when I started ophthalmology. So I was at University of Arizona and at the time, you know, like, you know, Tucson is a college town. Uh, and, you know, there was a lot of time where I could spend just thinking and that's what I did. And then I had access to, you know, the med school library and I had access to a free printer. So I was just printing anything and everything around, okay, how do I change the color of the iris? How do I, you know, this is before people really like talking about like imaging and like remote imaging in terms of like diabetic retinopathy. So some of the early stuff from the NHS and stuff this is just, you know, obviously I'm dating myself here. And even just like, you know, so I was doing a lot of research in areas. So I started looking at the creativity there in terms of, hey, let me look at these academic like papers in a different way. Let me see if there's opportunity here and discovery and something that I could potentially like kind of productize. I, I tell you that now in that sense, but if I was looking back then, it was like, hey, I was just curious. I'm like, I have no idea. This all just seems kind of interesting, right? Hindsight's always twenty twenty, where you can connect the dots. But then I got, you know, there's two areas and passions of mine growing up. One sports and one's um, video games. And so that's kind of what happened was I was just like, you know, 
there was something interesting that was told to me by Ike, you know, who I mentioned before. So he was a fellow. Uh, I mean, he's either in his residency. It was in his residency. It wasn't in his fellowship. Uh, in his residency, he was at University of Toronto. And he got to work with, like, the, the basketball team, the Toronto Raptors. And then he started noticing that there was more to visual acuity. It was more than just a benchmark of visual acuity. There's some folks that were some of the best three-point shooters, like Del Curry, that didn't want to be at 2020 vision. They wanted to be at 2030 because that's how they perceived the world. And so that's what they were most comfortable with. And it got me thinking more about the brain and perception. And that's when I started doing research. And this is one of the things I, I would say to, to, to those folks that are in med school or in residency is if you're curious there then and you want to pursue something, you know, kind of think out of the box, but actually communicate that. I think the hardest part is to communicate. So I just talked to my chairman. I said, hey, look, I want to do this study. But if something comes out of it, I want to be able to have that information, like from an intellectual property standpoint. And, you know, and I want to be the PI because I want to be the first author on this. I'm like, how do I do that? And so then he just like guided me. I actually funded my own study as a resident. You know, it was being very creative. I was working with college students. So I was giving them $5 Quizno like gift certificates and stuff to participate in my study. But I made it happen. This is with a busy, you know, like resident schedule and everything else. But then my research I was able to take with me and what I learned from it, the patents I got, I, those, were, those were mine. But I was able to fulfill research that I would have had to do anyway to finish my training because we're all required to do research. But I made it something that I was actually passionate about, not someone that, you know, I trained under. If there was someone I trained under that I was passionate about their research, I would have done that, right? But this was something else. It involved sports involved perception, involved using different types of technologies. And I kind of had to think out of the box. Um, how did that translate? So that's in school. Now, I know you asked a pretty long, you know, a broad question there. Like, how did I translate that after I got out of my training? I didn't know what I was doing. I mean, the, the, the thing about it is, is when we finish our medical training, we're at the top of that perspective area you know, whatever it is, internal medicine, pediatrics, you know, whatever, OB-GYN, you are now ready to go out and see patients. You've reached that top and now it's just more experience on your own, right? It's a huge ego hit to go from, hey, I've studied this for like a decade and I am literally at the top and now I want to pursue something that I am not as knowledgeable about and and you still want to say like, oh, you know, but I've earned the right and you got to listen to me like in this kind of like way, like, you know, respect me in this way. But if you're not speaking the language of those other folks, they don't care. And the reason why I say that was my very first startup was a video game company that was based off my research around perception where it was around neuromodulation. So you play the video game and it helps improve your on-field performance in sports. So for baseball, you play this baseball game and improved batting performance by 22% on field. And this is with like professional baseball players and everything. Problem is, I thought, oh, this is who wouldn't want to pay for this, right? But, you know, as I was building out that technology, I was utilizing different contractors and stuff. I didn't know how to really start a business in, in the sense of like, you know, I could have optimized it. But when I was out pitching for funding and so forth, there's folks that were like six, seven, eight years younger than me, you know, like straight out of college that you know, are like partners or like junior partners in pretty prominent VC funds. I'm sitting there running from clinic, like pitching. And it's just like, you know, they're half paying attention to me because they're looking for something like the pitch and the story to be in a certain way. But I wasn't as familiar with that, right? That process. But then, you know, it's one of those things where it's like, in a different setting, this person would be asking me for, for advice on stuff. So it's really hard, I think, for, you know, one thing I would say for folks is to really understand that it's okay not to know. It's okay to ask questions. But also one of the things that we always have to do, I wouldn't say kill the ego. I'd say tame our ego. Because just because we're excellent and we can, you know, potentially save people's lives and do these types of things on one end, which is, you know, is a blessing in and of itself, doesn't mean that that translates perfectly into everything else, you know. And so it's okay to ask questions. It's okay to feel like an imposter you know, at times and feel uncomfortable on certain things. And it's okay to like, you know, ask your engineer, like, what is an API again? You know, like, it's okay to ask these kinds of things and to learn 
but it's kind of hard and not, and not everyone can potentially do that. And that's okay. You know? So I think when people dip their toes in, into entrepreneurship, it's like, you know, and it also just depends on the type of entrepreneurship. You know, I'm talking from a technical standpoint, cause that's my experience. But if you go, if you want to create a, you know, donut shop, you know, like you could, you don't necessarily have to go into technology. So like, you know, yeah, absolutely. No, I, I appreciate the perspective. I have a lot to reflect on, and then I'll pass it on to Alex to get him started. I, I think the huge ego hit is an important concept that I haven't actively talked about, or, or none of our guests have actively talked about before. And, and you're right, right? Like clinicians get so good after such long training at certain things uh, that, you know, when you remove yourself from that context, let's say you want to start a business, but you don't know how to pitch or you don't know how to raise capital or you're not you know, a business guy or a gal, it just feels very, very uncomfortable. And, and I know I went through business school and had a ramp on experience and I still feel sometimes uncomfortable. And I can only imagine if you just like do it on the side while you're a practicing clinician or if you just leave clinical medicine and start doing it without any formalized training or education or, or anything like that. It's very, very challenging. And what I would say is I've noticed that the best people tend to thrive or at least learn to thrive in those environments where they have to continuously ramp up learning and especially learning from the best. I think that requires a certain level of open-mindedness and humility that isn't always present, but you can learn to actually get there. And one of my mentors always used to say something interesting, which is that you know, tier B people hire, it's kind of a crass comment, but tier B people hire, you know, tier C people, whereas tier A people hire other tier A people because folks who are really, really good, they want to be surrounded by incredibly smart people who can challenge them and whom they can learn from rather than people that they can just like boss around. So I really, really appreciate your perspectives there, Kaiser. And, and I just want to say, I need to find these school roasts at some point. We think that we're pretty good at research here, but we haven't been able to dig up those old videos, but maybe one day. I'll pass it on to Alex to get him started, but this was a, a great conversation from our side. But Alex, over to you. Awesome. Thank you, Shad. And thank you, Kaiser. Really enjoying the conversation here. And to go back to your question, Kaiser, about kind of my decision to go into medical school, I think it was really heavily influenced by my family and in, in kind of the environment that surrounded me at that time, because my dad is a medical doctor, my uncle was a medical doctor, and kind of most of the family connections were in the medical space back in Syria. And so, you know, medicine was the, the thing that I wanted to do heavily influenced by the family. And so I did study hard, got into med school, but I ended up practicing medicine on the front lines back in Syria during the civil war. And I learned a lot about medicine. I've gained a lot of hands-on experience, but also it was an experience where I felt a little bit helpless because I saw a lot of systemic issues and inequalities that I wanted to address, but I couldn't as someone who's practicing hands-on medicine, hands medicine, especially in Syria. And so, and so that experience made me crave for more impact. Um, and I think that started kind of uh, the whole journey after. Um, but lo love the conversation so far. You know, I wanted to shift gears to uh, your experience at Metaviz and, and Visario and kind of generally in the space of perceptual AI. Uh, you know, while preparing for the interview, I did a deep dive on perceptual intelligence in general and, and perceptual AI. And, you know, I've learned that in psychology, perceptual intelligence refers to the way people interpret their experiences and how they are able to distinguish their experiences and their perception of the world between fantasy and reality. So it's the ability to perceive reality as close as possible to the ground truth without the influence of emotions, desires, and thoughts. So to put it in machine learning terms, it's essentially the ability of people to build a representation of reality that maps as closely as possible to ground truth. Um, one of the things that I've learned as well is that humans develop intelligence starting with perceptual and manipulative intelligence, which is the ability to percept and kind of interact with the environment. Then they move to social and emotional intelligence and then to cognitive intelligence, which is the ability, you know, to think and reason in abstract symbolic terms. It's interesting that AI kind of evolved in the opposite way, starting to demonstrate cognitive and reasoning-based intelligence in the 80s and 90s. And perceptual AI, re and, and AI that can understand and see the world in the same way that we do, really lagged behind for a multitude of reasons. And you know you've been a pioneer in the space of perceptual AI, so... I'd love if you can share with the audience what perceptual AI is, the work that you've been doing in the space, and 
why perceptual AI is so important. Wow. So Alex, that's probably one of the most elegant ways of just describing describing it all in a nutshell. So, you know, I kudos to both of you. I mean, I'm sure the, you know, the way you guys prep for for your podcast is 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 amazing for everyone that's listening. I, I don't think I've I've heard any anything more eloquent in, in in the sense of that. So so you're absolutely right. You know, like sometimes it you know we make things more complicated than it needs to be in, in certain ways. And so when we talk about perception, like just how you talk about even AI, we start on the cognitive side and we're trying to like work backwards. And I, I kind of like how you, how you mentioned that. But when you think about children, think about babies, this is kind of where I got the, just the concept around all of this is like, I was looking at my nieces and nephews and just how intuitively they were using technology, right? Very early age, you know? And <clears throat> when you think about, Children, even without technology, they they perceive and they like to your point, they manipulate their surroundings to, to learn, right? And it's all through their sensory systems, right? Because that's at that point, when you're an infant, that's the you need that for survival, right? You need some context of your environment. And you know, the way I always looked at medicine in general and when i you know in terms of just like treating patients i don't look at necessarily the you know looking from a diagnostic standpoint looking from a human behavior standpoint right because i'm like okay this this is my differential blah 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 but what you know tell me about your daily life you know try and kind of understand that because you know how we interact with our environments you know, and how we behave in our environments will influence a lot of things from like our beliefs and so forth, some of the social intelligence and things that you're mentioning, but it, but it also will eventually also, uh, uh, your behavior will affect your health. Like the, you know, the representation, like what we talk about with epigenetics and, and, and so forth, just like, you know, the presentation of, you know, of, of a disease pre- process or not, because, you know, either you, we're doing behaviors that led to, you know, you having, you having a risk factor for diabetes, but then you develop diabetes, right? Just to give a simple kind of example. So I always looked at medicine from that standpoint. And then I also looked at creating in science, like how do I reduce this to something very simple? So what we're trying to do with perceptual AI is really just kind of, you know, borrow from the biological systems, you know? So quick aside is like, you know, people ask me, like, would you do it all over again? Would you go into medicine? You know, and there's also folks that are like these hybrids like yourselves that, you know, that have gone into medicine. You guys could probably answer this. I'm assuming you'll answer it probably in a similar way that I would. I I would say that going into medical school, even if you decide not to practice medicine, is one of the best graduate school programs you could possibly do. Because you learn system-oriented thinking, right? You also learn, learn applied science, you know. There's a lot of folks that really understand science and domain expertise at a, at a, at a very, at a depth, which is important, right? They're really good at a very specific area. And then there's some folks that understand system process. We learn how to understand systems and multi-systems, how they're interconnected. We get to know the, the deep science, but then we also have to look at it at a practical application. Like, you know that, hey, I can't give the same medication to these two folks because it's metabolized through the liver and this person has like, you know, liver dysfunction, for example, right? Because we had to kind of learn this. We don't realize that what we're learning is so valuable if we just like talk to other folks that are not in our field, you know, from a, from a standpoint of comfortability, right? This goes back to like, you know, being comfortable in different surroundings that you might not be the expert in. So when you go to parties, even when you go to parties now, I bet it's really easy to talk to other physicians because then, and then all of a sudden it devolves into talking about some kind of patient care or how many hours you're working or something of that nature. Right. But how many times you then, instead of just talking to physician folks, go to that other person, that's the lawyer or the engineer or the artist or the journalist and talk to them. Cause you can find commonalities and patterns. This goes back to like growing up in Utah, right? Like I was able to find those kind of commonalities and patterns. Now, when I think about, commonalities and patterns. That's how I kind of got to perceptual AIs because I started looking at, you know, the study of not just neuroscience, but neuroophthalmology. It's really around the cranial nerves and how we bring senses into our body, how we, how we process our environments, how we perceive our environments, right? And so 
what I'm trying to do is kind of solve the second half of the puzzle. So the first half of, in terms of like, when you think about the first wave of the internet and the second wave of the internet, it was really, how do we make it easy for humans to interact with technology, right? Like, how does it make it easy? Like, so the mouse made it really easy to connect with the PC, right? So that human machine interface part. And then mobile made it easy for us to inter interact with the world and technology, right? That started to connect our physical and our digital environments even more so because we could walk around with a handheld computer. But I think when we get to these multiple realities, which Alex also kind of touched upon as he was describing with perception and ground truth, you know, what is physical, what is augmented, what is mixed, what is virtual, right? It's all one continuum. But really, it's like for this third wave, for what people are calling the metaverse and Web3 and so forth, or whatever you want to call it, you know, digital twins, they're all part of it. I mean, everyone's using buzzwords. Uh, but whatever you call it is, you know, where I see the, the next wave actually really manifesting is if we solve the machine to human interface. So how do we teach machines how to perceive like humans? So, you know, it's really just based a lot on understanding biological systems and then applying them to computational systems. So that's, you know, and there's different modes for a human and how we perceive our environment, right? If I blindfolded you, you'd perceive, and you never saw what I look like, you could perceive, like, you can imagine based off my voice and so forth, a completely different individual, right? The message is the same, but it's a completely different experience, right? So it's really interesting how the different modes of sensory information really frames our reality and our perception of the world and each other. Um, and so that's kind of like how I really got into the perceptual AI is like, and we started with the visual system, you know, cause it's like, obviously I'm very familiar with the visual system and I could uh, say, I could argue that two thirds of your brain involves the visual system related to the cranial nerves and how they're all kind of interconnected. And the way I kind of break things up is the way we perceive influences our decision-making and our intentions, which then influences our action. So I really think about it as three different like kind of like steps. So if we can really identify the perception part and really improve machine to human interface, and really that's a UI UX thing. If we can if we can solve that, that opens up a lot more in terms of the next generation of of artificial intelligence systems, right? So, um, so that's kind of our approach. But you know, I, I always talk to folks about well, you know, I. Yeah, what's really exciting about your guys' podcast was what got me really excited about it, outside of being able to hang out with you two, uh, <laughs> is the fact that you recognize it you're in yourselves and in others. Things are changing. There's a lot more hybrids. There's a lot more people that are like, hey, I'm really good at, at, at you know, and I really, it's a noble profession to help people and to have people trust you in such a way. And then it's just like, but, you know, what if you could scale yourself? And I think that's kind of what the conversation here is and the previous conversations with other folks that have taken the beaten, you know, off the beaten path is like, what if I talk to that other person and I have an idea and it doesn't necessarily have to be in healthcare. If it's in healthcare, great. If it's not, but how can I extrapolate that out to, uh, to others and, you know, kind of scale my knowledge and, you know, and, and what does that path look like? Um, so that, that's what really got me excited because of the audience you guys touch. You touch the med students and the residents and even the pre-med and folks that might not even be in medicine, but might go, huh, maybe I should, even I want to be this, this biomedical engineer, I want to be an engineer in something else. Maybe I should go to med school first, right? Yeah, so. Yeah, no, I love that answer, Kaiser. And especially the element around how your medical training has enabled you to create a lot of innovation and has provided you with the insight, certain skills and certain knowledge points that have helped you later in your career. I think Shad and I discussed a couple of times this idea of can medicine actually become more of a generalist type of a degree, similar to 
an MBA or similar to a JD program. The way we look at the JD program is that it provides you with more generalized options versus a medical degree because people go into business, investment banking, and a variety of other trajectories. And so why not medicine becoming more of a generalist program where you actually gain a lot of these valuable skills that you can apply in biomedical engineering, you can apply in computer science, you can apply in in drug discovery and a variety of other options. So I love the answer and, and the fact that you elucidated those points. But shifting gears a little bit here, so Kaiser, you said in an interview that the way you see the next 15 years, it's all about personalization, smart consumer wearables, data, and in sports, it's all about how we can push the limits and how we can achieve things that were unimaginable uh, 10 years ago. So I want to focus on one specific kind of vertical of sports, and that's esports. So in 2020, you joined Global Esports Federation as an advisor, and one of the goals of the organization is to promote responsible gaming and wellness through gaming. You know, Shad and I are building a company that develops therapeutic video games that can treat disease and enhance human performance, so we are strong advocates and believers in that games can be a strong force for good. Yet one one cannot neglect the potential harmful elements of irresponsible gaming. You know, there's been studies that show harmful impacts of excessive blue light exposure or, for example, studies that show improper screen time or addictive games can have an impact on delaying the development of emotional regulation and cognitive abilities in children. So I'd love to know how you think about creating the proper frameworks that ensure that games are used as a force for good and are used to promote wellness. And what's your role as an MD has been in contributing to that vision of the future? That's a great question. Uh, So so yeah, I mean, I've been involved in gaming for a long time. And my very first startup was a video game company. You know, you guys are talking about therapeutics, and that's why I think we jammed very early was in my first gaming was around performance, you know, and neuromodulation. I I didn't really, you know, I couldn't probably say it as elegantly. So with the Global Esports Federation, a lot of these folks are from, you know, they've done, you know, these are like kind of some of the who's who in in like the International Olympics Committee, and they decided, you know, you know, very early on about athletes uh, being, you know, the way people used to visualize athletes were on like physical fields and not virtual fields or virtual environments and landscapes. So it was really neat to kind of get, you know, get access. At first, I started off in the Health and Wellness Commission, which I still sit, but I became senior advisor in science, innovation, and technology. And I'm also involved with the Digital Transformation Commission involved there, just from the standpoint of just kind of where my purviews are, both in terms of as a technologist, as kind of a futurist, as well as, you know, having this background in, in medicine. And, you know, I've always liked gaming. I mean, my first, you know, my first two startups have always involved interactive media, right, when you think about it. And in that sense, the reason why is because... You know, when I was a little kid, I used to watch like cartoons. It would be so cool to interact with that cartoon, right? And then when the video games started coming on, uh, together, then you could actually like do that. You can interact with the characters. But then, you know, as you think about it now and you think about the potential, like I get what you're saying because, you know, I work with a lot of different gaming companies in this space. And the big issue is like, you know, where's that balance? Sure, we can say the gaming's good, you know. And you're saying, well, you know, there's also the potential from the addictive standpoints and some of the research. I think some of the research is incomplete research. You know, you need blue light to survive. (laughs) You know, like that affects your circadian rhythm. But, you know, screen time can be something that can be, you know, too much screen time at the wrong periods of time can be, you know, that's, that's more of a time thing, right? There hasn't been a lot of studies in that space because, you know, when we think about it, we're talking about it from a policy standpoint without really understanding some of the fundamentals of gaming, right? How many people are actually doing a lot of data around like, you know, what receptors, what type of like dopaminergic responses are happening. And so I'm sure there's some, there's some university researchers around the world doing this, but probably not enough that you're really seeing it out there. So we're seeing a lot of like, Hey, let's just say screen time's bad and it's increasing our risk of nearsightedness, which is actually, uh, you know, it's a bit of an, you know, of a, its own quote unquote, like epidemic, right? There's a lot of nearsightedness because we're spending a lot of times uh, in front of screens 
for extended periods of time. Does that make gaming bad? No, because you could be on social media doing that, right? Any type of interactive. You could be on, you know, uh, watching some content on some streaming service. So, you know, I think part of it has to do with the education. Like gaming can actually increase a lot. Just like you said, hey, well, there's concerns about, you know, cognitive delays in development. You know, on the corollary, there's folks that are working in Minecraft and doing all these other things that they're actually creating. So I think the bigger question is, are you consuming or are you creating, right? So, and you can consume from an entertainment standpoint, you can consume from an education standpoint, right? Um, and too much of, of, I'd say one versus the other, it could be, could, could lead to some, some issues, you know, too much of the entertainment with not as much of the education, but gaming is a platform that allows for, you know, interaction, it allows for decision-making, it allows for so many different things. So I think some of what we do at the, at, at the Global Esports Federation is identifying all the different aspects of gaming that can actually lead to different life skills and also different types of like job skills potentially, right? You know, so I, you know, I was, I happened to be lucky enough to be around the World Health Organization in Geneva around the time that that article came out around or that, that, that comment came out around gaming can be addictive. And, you know, I actually spoke to the individual involved with kind of writing like those thoughts out. And a lot of it was, he goes, my intent was just to show that just like anything else, you know, there's addictive properties, just like smoking, just like, you know, anything, just like eating. If you eat too much sugar, right, that can lead to detriments. So anything in excess can. But I don't think that that vilifies gaming. I think what's interesting from a healthcare standpoint and interesting to what you guys are doing is a fact it's an access point. What's our biggest issue right now in healthcare? How do we get access? Because the population is growing at an exponential rate. You know, we don't have a doctor around every corner, you know, in uh, all around the world. But, you know, when you think about it, there's more phones than people on the planet, then Technically, you know, statistically, you could have access to resources. And so how do we use these technologies in a way that can, you know, give access to those individuals? And what I learned early on in my career is, you know, people don't like to, to play gamified tests, right? They don't want to say, hey, I, they don't want like a, to do a health screener in the form of a game. But what if you design the technology in a way where it can add to your healthcare without you even knowing. And I'm not just talking about games. Like, you know, like I wear an Apple Watch, right? You know, passively it's recording my heart rate. It can tell when I'm active. It can also tell if I'm getting an arrhythmia, right? But for my everyday purposes, the watch and, you know, it's, you know, if I want to count my steps, it's great. And, but now these are getting connected to games, especially with a lot of the Web3 companies. There's a few, there's one called a, you know, I don't know how they're doing right now, but there's there's one uh, Genopets where depending on how active you are, the features of the, it's a Tamagotchi style, so the features of the pet changes, and then you put it into like a card type of game, right? So the more active you are, so it's kind of promoting that. It's like gaming can, you know, but it's it's involving technology and it's kind of creating a different reality of sorts, right? But it's the machine interfacing with the human. And even the stuff you guys are doing with therapeutic games, it's like, okay, if if you can play a game that looks like a game, feels like a game, is entertainment, it's not a test, but it gives you an added benefit, well, that's great because you're going to play games anyway, just like you're going to watch TV. Like if the te television stuff gave us, this is what I call human-centered technologies, right? Is like if we can create, you know, experiences that are human-centered, but also understand human behavior. And I think that's that's a huge gap we have to kind of, uh, you know, you know, a huge gap or chasm that we have to like kind of like cross is, you know, all of us have been in situations with patients where we're like, hey, just do X, Y, and Z, right? And then they come a few months later, you're like, you still have the same problem. You didn't do X, Y, and Z, right? But then when we're that patient, you know, because one of the hard things is also being on the other side. It's really hard to do those things, to change your behavior, right? But the, the great thing about gaming, if you can educate folks about its, its abilities, is the fact that, hey, look, this is a vehicle that we can use to connect with people, that one at a personalized level or at a scale level, where we can actually do, whether it's an 
epi, you know, epidemiology in a public health kind of good. So you do it at a broader sense, or you can do it at a, at a very personalized sense. So, you know, I know this, this kind of, I kind of went off, you know, in a broader direction with the, with the question around the global esports federation, but, you know, being able to have a voice and being able to educate at, at that level allows me to kind of get individuals to think slightly differently about things, you know? Um, so that's, that's kind of why I'm involved. And, you know, there it's a class act like Paul Foster. He's done a great job in terms of like, it's only been like three years, but we have over 130 like member countries and federations. So you can see how fast that is because, you know, when you think about all the folks that are alphas, gen alpha Z millennials, they're all the ones that were, this was just part of life. Right. So it's a, it's a great medium to do interesting things, including healthcare. Thank you, Kaiser. This is an amazing answer. And I really appreciate how you've uh, helped our audience understand that, you know, games are a vehicle. They're a medium, right? It can be used in a positive way or it can be used in a negative way. It's really about how we use those games. And I loved how you essentially deconstructed it into are you consuming or creating? If you're consuming, what is what is it that you're consuming, right? One game could be focused on, you know, just creating engaging interface and engaging experience that provides the user with mini dopamine kicks and aims just to maximize the minutes of gameplay. And another game can be used to target the exact cognitive processes that are impaired in a particular disease and actually treating that disease by activating those neuronal networks. So it's really about the content rather than the modality itself or the vehicle itself, which could be positive or negative, depends on how you use it. And I love how you brought it back to the idea of having access and getting access to the decision makers in a particular industry and being at the table where decisions are made as an agent of positive change. And this is actually the reason why, you know, Shad and I were very excited about the podcast because we fundamentally believe in the value of having medical doctors at the decision-making tables in elements and verticals that relate to health and wellness and the industry in general. So really appreciate that point. And it's an amazing experience that you've had. So just to finish us off here, Kaiser, how can our audience learn more about the impact that you're having and how can they follow your work? Yeah, no, thank you. And thanks for having me. So like, you know, you could check us out at the Human Perception Lab um, at Stanford. And we also have the Vision Performance Center. I kind of look at one as being very much more technical, solving the problem around like, you know, human machine interfaces at the machine to human side of things. And then the Vision Performance Center, where we're just kind of looking at um, vision in its in its entirety, how it's connected to the brain, how it's connected to the body, both from like, you know, potentially new paradigms in terms of how we do clinical care, but then also in terms of how we even look at research in terms of like, you know, as things are moving to different compute platforms, including, you know, biomedical devices, which are head-mounted displays, whether they're a pair of glasses or, you know, a system, like, you have to wear prescription glasses if you need them in those spaces. That's why they're a biomedical device. And just like, you know, we're doing research in that space too. So in terms of following, you know, my work, you know, I, being on podcasts like this always help. <laughs> so and you can always, like, ping me. We're, we're working on some pretty cool things. You know, there's something down the line that we're calling the Human Perception Project, which I think will be, uh, you know, uh, as a teaser, it's going to be, think, like a decentralized, like, CRO, where you, you game, but you're actually helping researchers around the world. Uh, so, you know, stakeholders involve game developers, um, and, you know, it'll be an interesting application of blockchain. So I'll leave you those teasers, but, you know, um, this is something that I'm really excited about because, you know, having followed, you know, a lot of people are really excited about open AI and some of the possibilities of generative AI. But what I'm really interested from that standpoint, you guys could appreciate from your from your MBAs is the case study. You think from before then back in 2015, what they were trying to do, you know, <clears throat> it was really to get a whole bunch of people helping kind of establish these large language models. And so I'm taking little pieces, you know, it, one last final thing, I guess, from an education standpoint from folks is don't look at what everyone's writing about. Uh, in terms of the topic, look at the origin story of how those how those topics manifested 
five, six, seven years later. So, you know, you know, what we're trying to do with the human perception project involves some of these elements, like from the human genome project, from open AI and so forth, and, and what we're trying to do. So you guys are both gamers, you're game developers. I'm sure we'll be staying in touch on some of the things that we'll be doing here on that, but that's how people can kind of stay in touch with, uh, with what we're doing and, you know, really excited to be here. Really, you know, it's been such a pleasure talking to both of you. Thank you, Kaiser. It was fantastic to have you on and super excited about the project that you have coming up the pipeline. And the one that you've mentioned reminds me of the folding at home kind of project on distributed computing. But no, it's been a fantastic opportunity to have you on. Thank you. Chad, that was a great conversation with Kaiser. I really enjoyed it. And I have a lot of takeaways, but I'm going to keep mine quick here. I think my main takeaway was around the idea that he mentioned that his experience with diversity allowed him to develop a lot of skills on how to connect with people that were very helpful for him later on in his career. I think he mentioned that while growing up in Salt Lake City, he, he had to learn how to connect with people because he came from a very different background to everyone else. And I think that is something that, you know, you and I associate with as immigrants, but it, it also applies to medical doctors who are going off the beaten path, right? As an MD who's going into, for example, a consulting company or an investing or an investment bank, and you're frequently the only medical doctor there or one of the few medical doctors, and you may be not used to that environment. And so there is an element of diversity there. And I think looking at it as a growth opportunity where it can help you learn skills and refine skills that could be helpful to you in later on points of your career is actually a very good way to look at it. And I appreciated that point that uh, Kaiser has mentioned, and I think it it links to the experience of immigrants, it links to the experience of diverse individuals, but it also links to the experience of medical doctors going off the beaten path and going into an environment where medical doctors have historically not participated. So that'd be my takeaway and over to you. Thanks, Alex. Totally agree with your takeaway. For me, I had a couple, first a brief one and then a larger one. I think the first one is I just really appreciated the discussion around the importance of gaming and how whether or not a game is helpful really is based on the particular mechanism of action and what exactly the game is doing and what sort of impact it's having on the brain and the body rather than just uh, you know maligning a whole sort of modality and labeling it as either good or bad. One thing that I found interesting is I was reading a stat article uh, that the new CEO of Verily is actually an expert gamer, especially in, in World of Warcraft. Uh, and the stat article I read talked about how the game helped him, you know, organize people into teams, resolve disputes between them, to execute plans in the form of so-called raids. And you have to take into account, you know, context-specific factors and, and appreciate the trade-offs of taking one strategy within the game versus another. And that sort of helped him, believe it or not, get a knack of how to manage the complex operations of corporations. And he's worked at Starbucks and, and a few other companies and now has taken the helm at Verily to move it forward and applying some of those principles that he actually learned from a game in the healthcare world. My second takeaway, and the main takeaway here for me is I really liked his perspective on shifting domain expertise. So for doctors and other intelligent, hardworking folks with deep domain expertise, it's often a huge ego hit, as he mentioned, and just generally uncomfortable going from being an expert to being a novice in an area when we go off the beaten path. And I remember a cardiac surgeon who had reached out to me many months ago when I was still in business school. He had heard, you know, one of the podcast episodes and reached out and wanted to jump into consulting. You know, he was sort of burnt out with his clinical practice, uh, but he didn't know the first thing of, of how to get started. And while I generally think that medical training should be even broader in nature, and we sort of talked about some of those elements with Kaiser it's okay not to know everything. And, and someone who's been building businesses for the last five years will obviously know a lot more about how to build a business than a clinician 
who has been taking care of patients for the last five years, even a healthcare business, much like a clinician will know much more about clinical medicine than, say, a venture capitalist. We all have a few good things. We all have a few things that we're good at. For docs, it could be things like applied science, clinical workflow, understanding and management, an understanding of clinician pain points and effective communication with patients. All of these are, are somewhat generalizable skills that are helpful in other domains. And we can use that as a launching off point to meet others who may have complementary skill sets, work with them, learn from them. And that's sort of the so-called cross-pollination that we discussed. And eventually build a well-rounded skill set where you become an effective translator between uh, different disciplines. And so I really, really liked that element. I understand how disconcerting and difficult it can be to go from an area that you're relatively comfortable in and an expert in to an area where you're the novice. But I think being comfortable with that level of uncertainty and being comfortable being in an environment where you have to learn from scratch, just like being an intern again, if you do this a couple of times in different disciplines, you start to develop skill sets that a lot of people don't have. It's one thing to be a clinician or it's one thing to be someone in business, but having both skill sets can be very, very value additive in your career and to the world at large. That's my major takeaway from today's episode. It's an episode I really enjoyed. For our audience, join us next time for more conversations with amazing physicians who have ventured off the beaten path. And remember to follow us on social media on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at POTBP Podcast. And to catch our latest podcasts on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Amazon Music. And to get in touch with us, you can always email us at physiciansoffthebeatenpath at gmail.com or visit our website at potbppodcast.com. See you next time.